Hi, welcome to Behind the Shot. I'm your host, Steve Brazel, and today is something a little bit different and a little bit special. First of all, normally I release episodes of Behind the Shot every other Thursday. Works out usually to two episodes a month. But this month I've got three release dates. And while normally I would just put out another regular episode of Behind the Shot, there's something I recently did only over on the Behind the Shot YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash behind the shot, that I thought was timely and might be of interest to those of you that only subscribe to the podcast feed. If you only subscribe to the podcast feed, whether it be audio or video, that's okay, and you would like to subscribe over on YouTube, head on over to youtube.com slash behind the shot, subscribe, and make sure that you click the bell because that's how you'll get notified each and every time I live stream or release something to YouTube that's, that's new and different. So let me get back to the reason that I'm doing this kind of unusual episode today. Back on July 9th, Canon formally announced, we kind of knew it was all coming, right? But they formally announced the EOS R5, EOS R6, and a slew of new RF lenses. And about a week or so after the announcement, I had the opportunity to get somebody from Canon, a gentleman by the name of Drew McCallum, who you have seen on this show before when I interview people from Canon at WPPI and things like that. I had the opportunity to get him on for kind of a discussion about the new gear and a technical Q&A. I even put out on my social media soliciting questions from those of you that, that wanted to submit something. And during this hour and 20 minute conversation, we touched on the physical characteristics of the bodies, the processors, the electronic viewfinders and LCD screens and the differences between the two, the weather sealing, the card slots and, and the buffering differences between the two bodies, in-body image stabilization, the autofocus system, the sensors, it goes on and on, right? Connectivity, battery life. Uh, of course, we discussed those new RF lenses too. And we even touched on the video features a little bit. And I thought this would all be really good information for you, especially if you haven't gone to the YouTube channel to see the video. So I'm releasing it here as an actual podcast episode to finish out the month of July. Before I kick into that show that's already been live streamed a couple of weeks ago or a week or so ago, probably a week or so ago, uh, I wanted to say a couple of things because since we streamed it, a couple of things have become more clear both to me and the, the public and camera people in general. First of all, when we streamed this, a lot of the complaints were new. And you've heard the complaints, I'm sure, about overheating or the 20.1 megapixels on the R6 instead of it being 24 or 30, things like that. And as Drew and I were discussing all of the stuff that we covered, I wanted a couple of things to be clear to you now that I've had time to look back on it. And number one is everything that I approach in this show is because I'm a photographer. I am not a videographer. I don't do professional video. I am not a hybrid shooter. Periodically, might I record some video? Yeah, but it's never for a paying gig, right? It's for me. So because of that, my opinion on video stuff is gonna be a little bit skewed. And I don't think I'm the only one, right? So when I go shoot a concert, there's a lot of people out there that I know that will never do video. Like for me, I'm using a 5D Mark IV with a 24 to 70 Mark II for my webcam, but other than, and, and I'm doing it in 1080p, other than that, I've never used my 5D3, I've never used my 5D4 for video, and I don't 
see that I probably will anytime soon, except if I had an R5, I'd probably play with the 8K. That's pretty much about it. So during this show and this conversation with Drew, I make some comments about the video. I, I do mention that I, I just don't see it as being a huge issue, some of this overheating stuff. And some people got very mad at me in the YouTube comments, and they actually called me a couple of names a few times, which is absolutely fine. I'm good with disagreement. That's okay. But here's the thing. Everything that I'm talking about when I say that in this video is I almost always specifically reference the 8K limitations. I'm not talking about the 4K limitations. It's become more clear to me now that there are some serious 4K limitations. So I probably would take back some of what I say, but some of it I wouldn't. Here's why. If you are a serious video shooter and this camera doesn't meet your needs. It's not going to prevent you from doing your job. You can go with a Blackmagic design. You can go with a Panasonic. You can go with the brand new Sony that was just released. There's options out there for you to shoot the frame rates and resolutions that you want that don't have these overheating issues. So that's number one. Two, if you are a professional videographer and you do your research before buying this camera, this information is so covered right now, it's the only thing that people are talking about in regards to the R5 and the R6. Very rarely am I seeing these cameras reviewed even from a photographer point of view. They're out there, I've seen a couple of them, but it's almost all from the video limitations by videographers. And while they exist and the problem is real, it happens to be a problem that would never affect me. As a stills photographer, these cameras look very, very enticing to me. So as you watch this back, understand that if you are a professional videographer, the case may be that these cameras are not the best choice for you. And that's disappointing. Canon probably should have done some sort of active or passive cooling so that these video limits didn't exist or done away with this arbitrary 30-minute stop time for recording when my understanding is most of those limits from a legal point of view are gone. So there are things Canon definitely could have done better. One of them being marketing. They marketed this. They pushed the 8K and the 4K features of this big. And you shouldn't do that when it's got these type of limits that may limit a professional photographer. However, if a professional photographer ends up on a real paying job and these cameras affect that job by seizing up and stopping by overheating, that is a real issue that I think is avoidable. This information at this point is so out there. It's so overreported that if a professional photographer does not do their research before buying this camera, that's kind of on them at that point, right? You should know before you buy this camera at this point that it may not be for you for video or you buy it aware of it, you wanna test it in your own workflow and you've got so much time to return the camera if it doesn't work. So if the camera's just sitting on a shelf at B&H, it's not hurting you. You can still go do your job. You just may have to switch brands and that can be a pain if you already own a bunch of Canon glass. So basically what I'm saying is some of the things that I said Purely from a photographer point of view, I meant to be referencing only the 8K issues and it got conflated with the 4K limitations. I recognize that those are real. And if you're one of those videographers saying, Steve, I should be able to shoot 4K 60 for an unlimited amount of time. Dude, I'm right there with you, right? You should be able to. But for whatever reason, good or bad, Canon made decisions here and made an, a deliberate choice 
to not cool this camera down. There is no way during the design stages, I believe, that somebody in those meetings didn't put their hand up and go, wait, before we do this, are we going to have overheating issues? And whoever in that meeting that is the decision maker said, we're going with it like this. That's their choice. They can make any camera that they want to make, and we either buy it or we don't. And if this camera doesn't sell because there's more hybrid shooters that need long-form video recording, right? And when I say long-form, if this thing gets anywhere near heat, you're lucky to get two to five minutes out of it, right? If, if there are people out there and the majority tend to want these video features, this camera is not going to sell well. If it's mostly still photographers, or I would argue even 50-50, and some of the video people are okay with is probably what I would do. You know, a few minutes here and there of, of B-roll, and that's all I'm ever going to do, right? Then in that particular case, this camera may sell okay. Canon will be proven to be either right or wrong with the sales, and they will have to own it, right? Let's just all understand that. This is on them, and if they lose a client base because of this, after basically creating the market with the 5D Mark II, that's on them and uh, it's a mistake. Either way, I do wish that they had done better on the video end. I really do. Uh, I, I think that there's a lot of people out there, I didn't think about this when I recorded the original episode, but there's a lot of people out there with huge investments in Canon glass. And while my attitude has been, look, just go switch to Blackmagic design, you know, for some people, that's just not practical based on the amount of glass that they have. So there's my disclaimer and my eating crow, as it were. I made some mistakes in my assumptions about the video. And again, I'm not a videographer, so I apologize to those people I offended with that. Let's get into the episode. Here is the show with Canon, Drew McCallum. It's behind the shot. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the live stream here at Behind the Shot. I'm Steve Brazel, your host, and uh, I'm getting the echo from my own stream, so let me mute it, even though I told Drew to, to mute it. So a couple of things here. First of all, to everybody, I appreciate your joining me. This is the show where normally we try and get inside the mind of a great photographer by taking a closer look behind one of their shots from conception to completion, all the stories and challenges that happen in between. Today's going to be a little bit of break from that. We're going to talk about all the new Canon gear. Before I dive into it, before I bring my guest in, just a reminder for everybody, a couple of things that are happening here at Behind the Shot. Make sure that you check out the uh, the critique shows that I'm doing with Don Komarechka. Those are only here on the YouTube channel. They happen usually beginning of the month, once a month. And then also, it's just been announced, uh, Smug Mug Live, which is Smug Mug and Flickr. I'm going to be on Smug Mug Live this coming Thursday. That's at 10 a.m. Pacific time. So head on over to Smug Mug's channel, subscribe to them so that you get all the alerts with Smug Mug Live. Or if you follow me on social media, I'll, I'll let you know about that as well. Also, if you want to subscribe to the podcast, if you watch this live stream and you like what you see, hopefully you do, that's the goal, uh, make sure that you subscribe, hit the bell so that you're alerted every time I release something new. Shows like this are usually only on YouTube, the critique show only on YouTube, but of course the normal shows, the normal behind the shot episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts in two different forms. You can subscribe to the audio only podcast feed, or you can subscribe to the video feed, whichever one fits you. And that brings us up to today. And we now have all the details on all this new Canon gear. The R5, the R6, a slew of really cool Canon lenses. I've got to admit, I never thought I would want an 800 millimeter lens. I kind of want an 800 millimeter lens now. And as I saw the announcements on July 9th, 
from Canon, which they had to move to virtual, which, you know, kudos to them because they actually pulled it off. The announcements to me answered virtually all the concerns that people were raising from the rumors, right? We had all those rumors running around. We had the EOSR before this. And all the things that people were talking about, to me at least, and we'll get into that in detail, but to me, those announcements answered pretty much everybody's questions about the new gear. But I knew I needed to get somebody on from Canon to talk about it that knows a heck of a lot more about it than me. I reached out to my friend Scott Heath. He reached out to his friend Drew McCallum. And Drew, how are you? I'm doing great, Steve. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. You and I have met a couple of times, uh, usually at WPPI. You wouldn't yeah. let me touch the R5 in February for some odd reason. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about you for just a second. You are with Canon. You are the an, an advisor of technical information for Canon USA. Is that the best way to describe your title? Because it got sent to me and it was really long. What is your official title? Yeah, my, my official title is Technical Advisor, um, yeah, Technical Information Advisor for Canon USA. Um, my boss calls me the um, uh, uh, Chief Technology Evangelist. Um, I go by lots of different titles. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I fill a lot of different roles here at Canon USA from PR to uh, tech answers to writing white papers and things like that to um, research and finding out what the next uh, gear specs and fun stuff that photographers want to see or videographers want to see you actually it looks like the live stream no i guess the live stream is still going there we go uh you actually do some of the white papers we're yeah we're working on some of them the um we've got a few coming out and i'll be on uh actually working on some of them with a with a name on it others we co-write with others it's 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 a lot of work to put out a white paper that's it's an extremely amount of extremely amount yeah. of work for those of you that have never seen a white paper before, it is a deep technical dive on subject A, usually, uh, which explains a lot. When I've talked to you, the, the amount of information that you know about the gear, and specifically today, the gear that we're going to be talking about. Before we get into the gear, I just want to, all the people that are in the chat, I've got Connor in there, Terrell is in there, Scott Heath, our friend David Bergman, who's a Canon Explorer of Light, is in there. So to everybody that's here, thank you very much for stopping by, and let's kind of dive in here, because I know you've got limited time, and I want to use your time wisely. As we go through these topics, I'm going to kind of approach this from a point of view of parts of the gear. We'll talk about the sensors. We'll talk about the, the top panel of the, the bodies, et cetera. We'll talk about the lenses. I'll interject questions that I've gotten from people over social media as we go through. So let's first start with the R5 and the R6. The R5 is the higher body. What are we looking at price-wise for the 5 and the 6? Um, you know, I always have to go back to the paperwork on that because the prices are so fluctuate. They fluctuate everywhere, all over the place. So let's just say R5, uh, $38.99. And our okay. uh, and then our six twenty four ninety nine. So there's a big, there's almost fifteen hundred dollars price difference yeah. between the two, and we'll kind of get into what the the differences are. There's one thing I saw online, I want to hit really quick, and that is on the R six. My recent episode, the current episode of Normal Behind the Shot, is with Rick Salmon, who's a, also a Canon Explorer of Light, mm -hmm. because we explored him using a pre production model of the R six with some of the pre production models of the RF lenses, like the six hundred, eight hundred, one hundred to five hundred. And one of the things I saw somewhere online was somebody debating whether or not the R6 was a direct replacement for the 6D. And I, to me, correct me where I'm wrong, I don't see the R6, even though it is a 6, 
It has the weather ceiling and et cetera of a six series. I don't see it as a replacement for the six at all. It blows it away with autofocus features, et cetera. What, how do you see the positioning of these two bodies? That's, that's something that people always want to try and make that direct correlation between the mirrorless side and a DSLR side. Uh, what they forget is that both, uh, both of those camera systems can live congruently. They live side by side. And the R6 is a six lineage. So it has some, some um, ideas and thoughts behind the, the six realm of who it might actually answer the question of what do I want the camera to do? Just like the right. R5 has a similar type thing with the uh, the 5D4 or 5D series going, what do I want the camera to do? So we, we have that lineage that is carried over from the DSLR side to the mirrorless side, but that doesn't mean one is a replacement there of the other. So they, they live side by side currently. Which makes sense to me. And again, to me, the, 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 the correlation people want to draw between the number six is misplaced. It's a family position. Mm-hmm. It's not a set of features or or anything like that. At least to me, and you know, not necessarily. I, I mean, I, if I you look at the specs of the R6, then yeah, there's a lot of things there that the the 60 and 62 just don't have. It's like namely the the frame rates and things like that. That uh, the video specifications. Are, well, and again, you're talking then, 11 autofocus points on on a 60. Right. Right. Compared to what we have now, plus an EVF now, there's so much more. Right. Let, let's talk physical. My understanding in looking at these, the, the five's a little bit heavier. It's like 1.6 instead of 1.5 pounds. Mm-hmm. But they're physically in your hand. You've held them both, I assume. Of course. Yep. Physically in your hand about the same size? Um, the, the R5 and R6 are going to feel a little smaller just because they can be uh, width-wise. If you think about the depth of the cameras, they, they are going to feel a little smaller in your hands. But at the same time, you're not going to be um, feeling awkward from it. They're, they're going to feel very, very similar, but the size is going to be noticeable between a 6 and a 5, uh, respectively. Um, but the good news is we've we've put the buttons and switches and dials kind of back to where they are. They, we've kind of repositioned things like the AF on button and the joystick so that when you are working with these and you are coming from a 5D or 6D, that it does feel natural in your hands so that it's um, it, it allows you to make that transition. Even if you are working with one of each, you've got a 5D and a R5 um, at a wedding or whatever, then you can very easily go back and forth between the two. Yeah, which which is kind of how I see it. Actually, Terrell made a comment in the chat that he's no longer looking for a new 7D because to him, the R6, even though it's full frame, is a perfect second camera for him. And, and that's kind of where I see it, except when when I saw the specs come out and I saw both had a Digic X processor. Should I say X or 10, by the way? You'll know. It is Digic X. Okay, good. I got it right. So it's a Digic X processor. But your choices on how to differentiate the bodies was interesting to me. Your, I say your choices like, you know, you went, no, 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 this is what we're doing. It was all me. No. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and, and I find it interesting because I can see the cost savings to keep the price lower, and yet the functionality is effectively the same. So let's talk top panel. The R5 has an LCD like I'm used to on my mm-hmm. 5D Mark IV. The 6 has a dial. Any, anything you want to say about those choices? Um, you know, I think that's one of those personal kind of choices. I, I've learned to love the 
the dial on the R5 because it's quick and easy. And I don't find myself changing modes as much as I used to when I have the, the dial on top. I don't know why, but for some reason, I just don't shift as much back and forth in modes. Um, so it's it's almost a personal feeling thing. I think so. I think it's really one of those things. How much do you want it to do? The other thing is the, the top LCD on the R5 is fairly customizable to show you a lot of information. Sometimes I that, know that when, okay. when I say customizable, you can you can turn on and off certain um, settings on top. So if you just want to see the mode, it just shows you a giant M mode on top. And then you can toggle through and see other different settings that might be uh, available. Again, it's just a matter of how you want to see that information. Um, see, I find that interesting because that's a thing I think people, I have not seen that anywhere. And I think that's the type of, of customizable feature that some people, that'll be the deciding factor, right? I can, I can put my own face on this camera. Yeah, there's a lot of setups that you can do um, for, for the camera itself as far as changing buttons and switches and dials and how they respond, how they act. Um, you know, we could always maybe put more customization in, but at some point you start saying, okay, well, you know, how much customization and how do you achieve all of that customization? The requests we get are innumerable. There's just so many requests we get to, I want to customize this button, do this. Right. So. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. Let, let's talk rear LCD for a second. Yep. The the R5 is a bigger rear LCD. For a lot of people, I don't know that that will really matter to get two million dots instead of you know 1.6 million dots. But you've seen them both. Visually, is there a huge use difference when you're actually looking at it to you? Um, you know that comes into play sometimes maybe when you're outside and you see that the the, the resolution can help boost that in in bright sun just a little bit. But in reality, it is something that if, unless you put them side by side, you're not going to see a huge, huge difference between the two. Um, now the, the EVF, and we're talking about specifications here, the EVF on the R5 at 5.6 million dots uh, versus or 5.7 versus 3.6 on the, the R6. To me, that is something right. that I can see a difference. And that is something I would be okay. willing to pay for that, that detail, that, that resolutions. It, well, okay. Is that is the difference that you're seeing purely because of the resolution, the the five million dots versus the three dot x million dots, or the R5 also has a higher refresh rate capability? Actually, they're right? both it, the it'll same. It'll do 120 hertz. They 120 both do 120 frames per second on the refresh. No, they both do 120 frames. So they're 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 really um, the, as far as the refresh rate, you can choose the same refresh rate for both cameras. You've got a 60 and a 120. That 60 gives you. Um, you know, better power saving modes or you go to the 120 if you're doing fast action, you, you want to, you know, pan the camera a bit. It helps that uh, that refresh rate a lot faster allows you keep that subject in the viewfinder. We're going to get into battery in a minute, but you brought it up. I got to ask in your experience, having shot the camera mm -hmm. when you go to 120 frames a second versus lowering the refresh rate of the EVF. You know, I'm, I'm going to use an example. I'm at a fest all day festival. I'm shooting bands. I've got 70 bands to shoot or whatever at, at you know, Warp Tour, which unfortunately is gone. Rest in peace, Warp Tour. But I'm shooting this whole thing. I'm getting low on battery. Moving that at the beginning of the day from 120 to 60. Hmm. Is that going to be a pronounced difference to me in battery savings? I would think it would be noticeable. I don't know how noticeable, but. I wish I had some metrics on that and I haven't been able to do a full day shoot on the two to, to try and put that real world test uh, to try it out and see what the, the difference would be. But 
Um, I mean, EVF is a significant drain on the battery. I and mean, you look at the battery SEPA ratings, uh, and, and SEPA is an independent company that, that does all these measurements and things like that for us, uh, for all companies, actually. Um, you'll see that um, the, the measurements are done at given frame rates for given periods of time. Right. Um, I, I couldn't say, you know, it's a 10% savings going to or 20% savings going to the standard. We just don't have that data to put out there, but it, it, it would, I'm assuming, save you uh, enough. But the question is, is it enough to justify the difference um, right. or just carry a second battery, you know, put on the battery grip and have a second battery running with you to, to, to help compensate for that? And then have the higher refresh rate, which gives you other advantages. I'd probably just buy another battery. I, I think I'd, yeah. I want to touch. I want to touch on something that I am confused on, and I, I'm guessing other people are too. And that is the weather sealing. So, mm-hmm. the marketing material seems to indicate that an R6, being a six series, has the weather sealing of a six series, versus the R5 has the quote unquote weather sealing of a five series versus the weather sealing that you'd get on something like David shoots, which is the 1DX Mark III, which is the, the high-end pro body for those that don't shoot it. And that the 1DX Mark III is going to come back later in this conversation for something sure. and I talked about in the green room for sure. What is the difference in the weather sealing? I mean, if I buy an R6, what am I giving up weather-wise over an R5? You know, those are, again, the, the, there's, there's given weather resistance ratings for, for separate companies out there. And unfortunately we don't do those for cameras because there's too many variables. Um, but yeah, the, the R6 is a, uh, a 6D uh, weather resistance, uh, weather dust resistance uh, rating. I've been out in rain showers with 6D Mark IIs. I've been out in weather, uh, bad inclement weather with all kinds of cameras. Um, the only thing that's really going to give you that that hurricane type um, weather resistance is the 1D series, of course. Uh, don't, I'm not saying go out in a hurricane. That's probably not a safe thing to right. do um, with any camera. But um, when you look at the, the R6, yeah, it's equal to the 62. And I, I, like I said, we've had many people go out in pretty inclement weather with, with 62s and have not had uh, major failures. But again, everything is a, a dependent on how that rain's driving, how much soak time, all of those things are very, very unique to the situation. And, and let's be honest, you can buy, you know, rainstorm covers. Always recommend that yeah. I would even do most likely on my high end bodies. Right. Yeah. And even, right. even the pros shooting major league sports and things like that, they're bagging their cameras. If they're out at a baseball game or racetrack or whatever, they're bagging the cameras just because you never know. Yeah. In fact, David, if you're still in the chat, uh, David Bergman just just literally as I said that chimed in on the chat. I've literally shot in hurricanes before. Not recommended. Not recommended. No, no, no. Back but here's my question, Miami. David, for you. With your 1DX, are you ever in rain where you decide, or for that matter, your 5D4, do you decide to put a rain jacket on it when you're out in a storm like that? David, answer that for me. I'm dying to know. While we're waiting on David, David's part of the show now. I should have just had him call in. Uh <laughs> The frames per second. I've never been, I'm going to sound stupid here, and to my viewers, I apologize. I am not a mirrorless shooter. I shoot a 5D Mark IV on one hip. I am a Canon shooter, a 5D Mark IV on one hip and a 5D Mark III on the other hip. The idea of 12 frames per second mechanical versus 20 frames per second electronic. Explain that to me, and I'm going to throw a question in at the same time. Alan Wood commented on the Rick Salmon episode that I just posted. 
And he said, can you customize the frame rate for the mechanical and electronic shutters if you don't need the maximum 1220? Uh, and then he also adds, we'll get into the card slots in a minute, but with the R5, do electronic shutter shots need to be written to the CF Express because of the size and the frame, you know, 20 frames per second at 45 megapixels? You know, how's an SD handle that? What do you, what do you say on the, the adjustable frames well, per second? First of all, we, we've always had um, in our cameras a um, high continuous, high plus, high plus, um, what is it? Uh, uh, high H plus, H, and then a uh, single frame, and then a silent low frame, silent high frame. So you've got adjustable mechanical frame rates uh, selectable. So you can go 12, uh, 8, and 6, I think, is the, the three different settings between the, the, okay. the cameras. When you go to, to 20 frame uh, electronic, it's just straight 20 frame. And you see that white border around the viewfinder or LCD as you fire. And it's it's just blinking at you as you go 20 frames a second. Um, I'm sure there's plenty of requests to take that down a notch to say 10 or something like that. But if you go into single frame um, shooting, you can just shoot, 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 shoot with your with just as you shoot and get one frame in silence. So you don't have to shoot 20 all at once. You can get a single silent frame. And, and a lot of cameras you yeah. can't, it's just silent. Burst. Well, and I'm used to on my 5D4 doing like a three or a five shot burst. And it, right. at 20 a second, there's no way to do that. You're going to touch the button and you've got 20 shots. You've got 20 shots. It, it's, it's going pretty, it's so fast. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, why do you need 20 frames per second? And I'm going to refer to some of my, uh, photographers in in DC, or some of my photographers that are doing press and, and event work, where the the nuance of someone's facial expression can change the the story or or can really tell the story. Um, when you have that twenty frame per second uh, rate, that's that's almost video, and you can you really choose that nuance of image and say that's the one I want. That's the expression I want. Maybe it's a a kid or a wedding. You've got that nuanced image, that that one piece in between other pieces that uh, you didn't have before. I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to music photography, and that is when I'm shooting a singer on stage. Yeah. The difference because they're moving so fast and making such weird mouth movements yeah. with a song, the difference in a millisecond can be the difference between seeing a tongue in a weird yeah. position versus seeing eyes in a great position, and it can be you know, just instantaneous. The slots. I want to talk about the slots a little bit because the the R5 has two slots. They both have two slots. But the R5, right. as can be seen in the picture here for those watching, by the way, I should say what David said. David said, as Drew says, always bag up. Why chance it? Of course, you don't want to get water on the front element uh, and no ceiling will help that. So yeah. good point. So the slots, I've got the picture up of the R5 slots in front of me, and it's a CF Express, and it's an SD card. If you go to the R6, it's two mm -hmm. SD cards. Buffers are different with these cards, with these bodies. What am I looking at as an end user to go with an R5 versus an R6 as far as really being able to use the frame rate based on the resolution and based on the limitations of, I mean, an SD card isn't a CFAST card. There's no way around it. So what am I looking at as an end user on that? 
Right. So the, the, the CF Express cards are a different format. They're a fairly new format. We are using two of those in a 1DX Mark III, and that is basically for the extreme um, frame rates that we're get, capturing, but also for the video frame rates that we're capturing. That has a lot to do with it um, to why we have those frame rates as they are. Um, when it comes to the, the R5, um, you'll be able to capture those 20 frames per second in silent shutter to the SD card if the card is fast enough. Again, it all depends on the card itself. It is a UHS-2 card slot. So it should be able to handle most anything that you go to. Of course, we have our, our buffer breakdown matrix of how many images uh, to the SD cards. And that's a pretty significant list of if this then type scenarios, are you shooting raw plus JPEG? Right. Um, all of that really well, does come into what play. What if you're shooting mirrored? What if you're shooting like I do at a concert, I'm shooting mm -hmm. the same shots to both cards. Is that going to heavily weigh me down based on that SD compared to the CF? Um, well, I mean, it's going to matter more about the, the type of card itself. If you put a UHS-1 card slot in that uh, that thing, you're trying to shoot raw to both. And of course, you're going to be a little bit limited because it can't clear that buffer to both cards at the same time. Um, but if you do have two high-speed cards in there, one CF Express and one uh, UHS-2 SD, you're probably going to hit that. I think the buffer on that's uh, 180 raws, if I remember yeah, correctly. Yeah, I've got the numbers here in front of me. The The CF Express was 180. Yep. The In the R5, the SD UHS-2 is an 87 buffer, but still. I mean, let's... <laughs> we're talking 87 images at 45 megapixels. Still a we lot, Yes. Yeah, <laughs> my God, that's man. still a lot of images that you're pushing through that that uh, that pipeline. Um, and again, on the R6, if you go JPEGs, you're basically unlimited because it's you know 20 million pixels right. to a really fast. And even raw, it's 240 raw. 240. Yep. So you've really yeah. got a lot. If you're if you're hammering down that long, more power to you on the editing side because that's going to be some culling that you're going to have to do. Well, I've I've you know, I know David Bergman and and David. You know, the way David shoots, he may need a thousand buffer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm teasing, David. Yeah. Uh, okay. So one of the biggest announcements was the long-awaited, the long-desired, the almost opined for in-body image stabilization. Ah, uh, my favorite thing. See, here. your face just said uh, it right there. Even you wanted it. Uh, so in-body image stabilization, let's leave the lenses out for a second. Yep. In-body image stabilization on both bodies gives you how many stops? Up to eight stops of image stabilization. Yeah, but that's, that's with a, the lenses. Um, well, if that's you consider one with the, lens, right? the bodies themselves are five, right? Actually, no, it's a five axis, uh, meaning dimensional. Oh, five out, axis, but five eight axis. stops. So you can do up to eight stops of image stabilization because if you figure, if you look at the list we put out there, the 28 to 70 is not image stabilized. That is an oh, eight yeah. stop image stabilized with in-body image stabilizer lens. Wow. It's insane. And we're hand-holding these have cameras. Have you tested it yourself? I have, and I'm, I'm afraid to say how long we've been able to hold it because it's going to vary per user, but I can tell you that I've never handheld a camera this long without some kind of um, multi-shot mode in my life. It's, it's just, Steve, you're going to go crazy for this. I'm, I'm going to challenge you, your next concert, to, to see how long you can handhold and get this crazy blurred 
musician while the stage stands still. Oh, I can imagine it too, right? Exactly what you said. The amps, the mic, tack sharp, but but artistic. Oh, I yeah. love it. I saw that you say something insane. in a B&H stream. Yeah. In the B&H stream, and folks, if you, if you don't follow B&H, and if you don't watch their podcasts and their streams, you definitely should. Great people that know a lot of stuff, and they know the questions to ask, right? In the B&H stream, you said something on IBIS, in-body image stabilization. You said it's up to eight stops for stills and video. Mm-hmm. That's key, right? But then you said the more steady the camera, the better the in-body image stabilization, which is interesting. It used to be if you were on a tripod, you wanted to turn image stabilization off. You're saying steady the camera and it improves it? No, I think my my inference there is on how a camera can achieve focus. And this goes back to something I was told a long time ago. Um, that the the more stable that the camera is, in other words, the, the AF sensors, because remember, you're using a, a sensor on the camera to, to achieve focus. The more that that camera can stabilize the image to identify the subject, meaning your subject's moving like this, you're able to keep that subject still by keeping the body still. The AF sensors can lock onto the subject better. So the more stable the platform, the the camera, not really the the tripod, but the more stable you are, the more accurate that camera can be. Because if you're doing this all over the place, it's having a hard time because it has to move the AF point and the lens and the image stabilization. But if you've got stabilization to help shake, to mitigate the shake of you, then that camera can acquire the subject much, much easier and therefore sharper image. It still rolls through. If you are on tripod, I would turn off image stabilization. Okay. Good good to know then. Which then comes in with the additive feature, which especially with what some of these lenses are, like when we get into the new lenses, these are inexpensive lenses that have IS. Mm -hmm. When combined with this body, it's amazing what it can do, spec-wise at least. But the body image stabilization works in conjunction with lens with rf lenses most rf lenses um you have what's called coordinated image stabilization meaning the processor in the lens and the processor and gyro in the camera body are actually coordinating together where things are with the subject distances the speed all of that information the 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 rotation of the camera the movement of the camera they're coordinated together when you go to a lens that might be an adapted EF lens, you still have the optical stabilization of the lens itself for, um, depending on how the lens is, is built, it might have pitch and yaw, but the sensor is running pitch, yaw, and roll. So those different directions that are happening, it's able to uh, stabilize, but they're not coordinated effort together. They're, they're still working, but they're not coordinated specifically together like they are with an RF lens. Okay. Andrea Dett asked on Twitter, and I think this kind of touches on this because it, first is question. I have a question about in-camera IS. Does the IS on a lens need to be turned off for it to work or can both be used simultaneously for more stops? So we've established that with, a, with an R body and RF lenses, they can speak to each other and work in tandem. But in the scenario that you just mentioned, and that's let's, let's use an example of, I put an EF 70 to 200 on an R five body. 
the EF lens has three, whatever, four stops of IS in it. Right. The body has five axis up to eight stops, but they aren't talking to each other. Correct. Can they end up fighting each other? I mean, in a better, in, in a top scenario, should I rely only on the eye, the in body and turn off the lens? Well, the, here's the thing. If or the would lens, you leave both on anyway? I would leave both on anyway, because um, if you, on the lens itself, if you flip the IS switch to off, that turns off all image stabilization. So there's many okay, cases. Okay, say that, that again. If you switch off image stabilization on the lens, that turns off all stabilization. We're making it as simple as possible. It turns it possible. off in the body too. Right. You don't have to go into the menu and, and oh. independently control in-body stabilization okay. and lens stabilization. There's not a separate control for all of these things. It's not a fine-tunable setup because it's so complicated in how things work, whether you're wide-angle, telephoto, mid-range. There's too many variables that, that really you don't want to have that much control. If you flip off image stabilization on the lens, that turns off all image stabilization. So if you're working a gimbal for video and you don't want stabilization turned on, flip it on, this, on the lens and you're good to go. Oh, okay. So that's fascinating. That's another one of those things I think people need to know. Apparently I missed something and, and Christian mentioned it in the chat. Uh, the question I had asked about the differences between a, a electronic and mechanical shutter and specifically in the differences for stills. Could you, again, not being a mirrorless shooter, and I apologize if I sound stupid here, what is happening with a mirrorless or a mechanical that I need to know as a user? Well, it's, it's a matter of how the, the system works. Even though it's a mirrorless system, there still is a mechanical shutter that closes or opens for the exposure. And especially when you're dealing with uh, very fast shutter speeds, once you go to you know a 60th, hundredth, two fiftieth and faster, that's actually a mechanical shutter that's closing to stop the exposure. Because these aren't what are called global shutters, meaning the, uh, the, the sensor, everything fires at one time and then turns off. It's actually a scan of the sensor from top to bottom. And okay. if you're running a very slow sensor read off, then you're going to see, say this pen, you're going to see this pen warp and that's called rolling shutter. So mechanical shutter allows you to shoot at very fast shutter speeds and turn that exposure off very fast, especially 500th of a second. You can't turn on and off the sensor that fast all at the same time. They're not global. So that's the one reason to have a mechanical shutter in the, 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 the camera. Also for flash sync, if you notice in silent shutter, you don't have a flash sync speed at all because basically you can't run all of your your pixels on the sensor in synchronization with the flash itself, because it is that scan oh. of the sensor. Right. Right. Um, so that's the reason that we have mechanical and electronics is that silent shutter allows you to be just basically noise free uh, when you're in your situations uh, like press events and whatever weddings where you don't want to be hurt. Television sets where they used to have to use a blimp. Blimps, yep, movie sets, television sets. Um, you probably don't have to worry about that too much in concert. Um, however, you start shooting music videos, you, um, you, you need to have that quiet thing because you just don't want anything to potentially be picked up by a microphone. Okay, um, yeah, oh, that all makes sense. Hopefully that, Christian, hopefully that made it a little clearer for you. Batteries. As I touch on batteries, uh, I'm going to mess up the name, Ramage. 7070 in the chat said, would love to know if the R5, R6 can actually be powered 
via USB using a supported power bank, which is handy. Like I'm using my webcam right here as a 5D Mark IV. I don't trust a battery, so I got an AC kit for it. Can you power these off of USB? Um, that's a, that's a really tough question for you there, uh, Ramaj Seven Seven. I the Canon official answer is the PDE One power adapter is the only one that will do that, simply okay. because there's too many variables on the the PD power supplies, and I wouldn't want you to go out there and plug in a power supply and it ruin your camera because it's not the right voltage or it's not the right um, kind of PD power supply. I'd be cautious on it, not to say that it wouldn't work, but I can only say the PDE one would do it. Right. Okay. Battery then. Yep. Since you can't power it over USB, we're going to have to have a battery most likely. The battery ratings of, for example, 220 shots. Yeah. So Now, I understand that's a standards-based test, mm -hmm. right? That's not real world. And we'll find out in, when these things hit the market. Yeah. But I can take my 5D Mark IV to a festival, shoot all day with the thing, come home with 1,500, 2,000 shots, and have not changed a battery. Right. I mean, maybe at the end I get nervous and I'll change it, you know, because Foo Fighters are about to hit the stage. I'm like, I've got one square left. Just change it, Steve. Just <laughs> change it. Better power up. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. So explain to me, because 220 to me, I, I'm going to be honest, it looked really low. It does. And that is one of those things when the SEPA ratings came out with the EOS R back in 2018, it was very similar in that 200, 300 on the power rating from, from SEPA. But the first day we had all the press and media out shooting with it, they came back to us and said, well, I just got 2000 images on this. How come I only got, how come I got 2000, not 300? That's because the, the SEPA ratings okay. are typically very, very conservative. Realistically, I, again, it depends on how much are you going into the menu and playing with it and playback and zoom and what all are you doing with the camera. So there's a lot of variables for, for power supply. Uh, you, realistically, Steve, you're probably going to see, I'm going to bet 800 to 1,000 images just on- Which is fine. Just, just kind of my experience. I'm not talking about what the spec says, um, just how we typically work. So- Connectivity, since we mentioned the USB-C, let's jump into connectivity. It does have, both these bodies have USB-C. Yes. I'm assuming that's for file transfer to a, to a computer. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so if you want to do tethered operation, you can do tethered operation and things like that. Downloads. But then you got micro HDMI. And I, 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 I it's not mini. And I, I'm, it's micro. I, I'm using a mini HDMI connector for this camera right now. Any idea? Was it purely a space savings to your knowledge? You may not know why they went micro. It's space. It's basically we we want, we pack so much. If you ever take these cameras apart and peel back all the layers of what's happening inside, no, these thank things, you. Um, yeah, I'm sure someone's going to. Don't do it. Um, you will see how little space there is inside these camera bodies, and uh, the, wherever we can find ways to save space and improve. Um, when it comes to the engineering side, if they can improve um, anything inside engineering wise, they will. They're not going to sacrifice something to say, okay, we're just going to use a HDMI mini because, or micro, because that's what we randomly chose. Uh, it's mainly for size. Okay. Which, yeah, I, I totally get that. Wi Fi, though, made me happy. You've got Wi Fi in both. Mm hmm. Uh, but again, the R5 has an advantage there, and you've got Bluetooth in both. Right. And the R5 has an advantage there. The Tell me first about the Wi-Fi. 
obviously five gigahertz on the R5, right? Right. So you do have that um, that different bandwidth to so get you above all the interference of five gigahertz. Um, you know, most of your your laptops and everything today is running a five gigahertz band. Your your mobile devices are running a five gigahertz band. Um, allows for very fast transfer, and even today with Cam, uh, Canon Camera Connect, you can toggle an option on so that it will automatically transfer from the camera to your mobile device. Now you can imagine if you're transferring every raw file that you're shooting to your iPhone, it might fill up your phone pretty yeah. quick. Um, yeah. But it is there if you want to do it. You can send every image you shoot to the mobile device. Um, so but yeah. Bluetooth. Bluetooth is 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 um, it's very misunderstood in the camera world. Um, what we do at Canon is the Bluetooth technology stays on between the camera and the mobile device, and it keeps that link together. So you don't have to reconnect every time through your uh, mobile device settings for connect to Wi-Fi. Basically, you send an image. Okay. If you basically say send it reestablishes the Wi-Fi connection based on that Bluetooth. It's a, it's a, it's a link, it's a handshake so that they really stay connected full time. But the file transfer is still over Wi-Fi. The file transfer is always over Wi-Fi. Yes. Okay. So then the R6 has Bluetooth 4.1, whereas the R5 has Bluetooth 5. I'm not a Bluetooth engineer, but my understanding would be, you know, five is much lower energy use. So that's probably some battery savings there. Correct. Yep. Okay. Mainly it's just, but your functionality is not going to be that much different compared to say, if you're shooting to your, your, your iPhone or, or your Android device, you're not going to see huge differences between those two. Okay. So now let's touch on the meat of the matter, which is the sensors. The R5 is 45 megapixels. The people who have waited for this, thank you. Uh, but I wanted to kind of go through from the outside in, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. R5 is 45 megapixels with a maximum shot size of, uh, what, 8192 by 5464. The R6, 20.1 megapixels, 5472 by 3648. So before I get into the internet complaining about a camera that they don't even have in their hands yet, which we'll get into, we talked about this in the green room, let's be clear here. The 20.1 meg, they're, they're both full frame standard 35 millimeter sensors. Yes. So the R6 at 20.1 has much larger pixels, mm-hmm. much larger. The stat that I saw said, and I quote, similar to a 1DX Mark III. And then I've heard other people say it's the same sensor as a 1DX Mark III. Is it the exact same 1DX Mark III sensor? Not the exact same. It is, it's based on the 1DX3 sensor. And the reason is every camera needs to be tuned for its purpose. And you look at the 1DX purposes and, and what it does and all of the other things that are part of the 1DX, such as the, the low-pass filters and all that, because that is different. Um, we, we call that out specifically in the 1DX3. It has a very unique low-pass filter on that. Uh, it is slightly different on the, the, um, the R6. Um, so that's when we talk about the sensor, it's not the exact same, but it is very, very, very similar. Okay. But being, being larger pixels, larger photo sites mm-hmm. at 20.1 megapixels, I'm guessing is also the explanation for the ISO difference. Correct. Because the ISO on the R6, literally, especially in expanded mode is double. It goes double. twice as high. Right. 
That's right. why, and right? That's why. That's absolutely why. You've got larger pixel sites um, that better light gathering capabilities for that higher ISO or, or long exposure type capability, then yeah, it does have that that advantage. And that's always been the case in, in pretty much every camera we've put out there. The, the 62 is fabulous for um, for low light um, work and high ISO performance. Right. So Terrell, who's in the chat today, in fact, he's really active in the chat. And Terrell, thanks for stopping by. Regular watcher of the show and a super nice guy. He asked a question on Twitter. You know how a lot of camera bodies and camera Canon cameras have done this before too, where you have different size crop options that you can do. So you've got a 30 megapixel image, but you can shoot at a smaller raw size, right? Mm -hmm. His question is, is there a crop down mode or a mode where I can shoot 26 megapixels as an example or 24 or whatever, if he doesn't want full res on an R5? Right. You've got a 1.6 crop option in the R5. So it is a very easy selectable crop mode. So you can crop down on that. Um, my, my question is always that why not capture as much as you can at the time and then crop down later on, or you have a little bit more flexibility in your crop later on that again, that's a personal thing. And I totally understand that. Um, but yeah, we do give you that 1.6 crop built in. Well, any idea without me doing the math in my head, what that comes out to? Uh, I think it comes down somebody to... Somebody will put it in the chat, I'm sure. Yeah, I forget the exact spec on that. I can actually somebody somebody do a 1.6 on, on uh, 45 and see what we get. So, see, I could see a situation where your card's running out, you don't have another card, and you go, you know, I want to save some space here, and I want to shoot at a lower res, and that would be that would be handy for that. But now from the internet complaint department, again, <laughs> and no one even has the camera in their hands yet. I love this. David Bergman right. shoots a 1DX Mark III. David Bergman is literally one of my heroes in photography. I have never heard him or anybody else that uses a 1DX Mark III. For that matter, I've never heard anybody complain that a 1DX Mark III has 20.1 megapixels. You can make perfectly good, sellable, professional images on 20.1. And yes, contrary to belief, you can actually crop them and still print 16-inch mm -hmm. prints if you want. For most people, I've got a printer back here, the Canon Pro 1000. <clears throat> but for most people that are only sharing these things, thank you, Scott Heath. He said it's a 72, uh, which... 17. We're about 17 mega, uh, okay. mega, uh, megapixels. So it's about 17 megapixels. Okay. Yep. The, the difference. Um, or 27. That would be 27. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm actually looking yeah, at the tech note right now. It actually says 17.3. Oh. Okay, good. So the, the math. Math is a skill. Uh, so 17.3. Yep. <clears throat> and and Brant got it. Thank you, Brant. So here's the deal. Most people are not printing anyway. I wish more people would. I believe that having a hard print in your hand is an amazing thing. Mm -hmm. But most people are posting maybe 2,000, 2048 pixels. I often post 1,000 pixels yeah. online. You can take a 20 megapixel image, you can crop it to death and still have plenty for what most people are using it for. And even a wedding photographer could crop it and sell a 16 inch print with no problem. So <clears throat> I'm hearing all over the place, oh, if only the R6 had 24 megapixels. It's a four megapixel difference. Or if only it had a 30. Okay, well, in that case, just go a 30 to a 45 isn't a big enough difference in a product line for any business. Right. So... And again, David's in here, and David just said, I've never had a client say they need more pixels. 
Right. Exactly. So with that in mind, what is your answer to people that are saying, because a lot of it's, it's not complaint. It's a mental issue. Like me, I've got 30 mm -hmm. on my 5D Mark IV. And there's this mental thing of, well, I do crop my images. What's it going to be like if I drop to 20, right? It's all mental to me. The 20 is totally usable. What is your answer to people that are concerned about moving down in pixel count? Yeah, and that's buy that's the buy really, the R five and be done with it. The, no, I, I wouldn't say that because with that with that forty five million pixels comes a, a slew of different things that you have to consider: is storage, both in camera and when you get home. You know, are you are you really wanting to edit that much in in space, and and how much is that going to add to your your your? You know, I've got a, a twenty terabyte server over here, but when you look at the R six and 20 million pixels compared to 24 of maybe some competitors or some of the other ones out there. Um, I, you're looking at such a small percentage in difference. I, I'm not sure if you put them side by side um, visually, are you going to see a difference in four or 5 million pixels? I forget what the, the actual percentage is. It's just like, you know, 3% difference in, in size. Um, yeah, I, I don't think you will. It's it's a lot of it, a lot of it has to do with good quality pixels, not necessarily the quantity of the pixels and how good is that file coming off the sensor? How malleable is that sensor? How how much can you push that sensor? What's the heat buildup? If you do crank up those ISOs, all of that is is behind the scenes. I know it's beyond that twenty versus forty five, but um, right there you have to really choose on what is it that you want the camera to do so that you can decide what is it that you want the camera's features to be. If you're a landscape nature shooter and you want detail in the trees at a half mile away, you're probably gonna want the R5. Well, like you shot a yacht picture that you posted online that was from far away, you shot with a 100 to 500. And what I tell people is, and David just mentioned this in the chat, everybody thinks you always print at 300 PPI. No. Right? And or, or DPI, depending on if it's right. on screen or print, right? And you don't. So if you're printing a large print, you're not printing at that because, like if you go into a, uh, I always use clothing stores as an example, where they have these prints of models on the wall that fill the whole wall. If you walk up three feet from it, you'll see the pixels. They're half an inch apart, right? right? It's designed to be seen from farther away. So the bigger you print on this camera natively at 200 PPI, you can get an 18 by 27 print. How many of you are printing 18 by 27? And you go lower than that if you need to, if it's going to be really big, not a problem. What I said online was, you know what? Some cameras just may not be for you and that's okay. Buy the camera that fits your workflow and enjoy your day. That's really what it comes down to, to me. And I get that the cropping factor is part of it. You mean there's very few images I go out there and I don't crop something some way, somehow it's never exactly the same in the camera than what you envisioned it to be. So I'm going to crop a little bit along the way. Um, so a lot of people have that argument of cropping power of, of 20 million pixels. And again, that does go back to the, the quality of those pixels, how much power behind those, how much detail have you captured um, through right. the lens for the image to be sharp enough to handle that crop as well. That there's a lot of play again in all of that together. So, uh, I, I, I want to move on from this topic, yep. but there's two things Go I got to say in here. And that is David just said in the chat, it's the right tool for the job, right? If he's yep. doing sports or concerts, 20 megapixels all the way, high ISO, better high ISO frames per second. 
and a commercial job, you may go for the R5. But Reno said, can Drew explain the difference in resolution from an EF mount versus an RF mount? So if I use an EF lens on this, am I losing anything? No. You're really not. I mean, if you take I, I the, get the benefits of the mirrorless as far as the edge of the frame and stuff, even mm -hmm. if I'm using EF? Yeah. If okay. you look at Good things point. like, well, I'll just use a very simple example of the 35 um, F2 RF versus the 35 uh, 1.8 uh, EF mount. Those two lenses are almost identical, but internally reversed. Um, of course, one has image stabilization and uh, half macro-like uh, capability in the RF mount. But the edges on that uh, 35 were able to push the sharpness level on the edges to that. But when it comes to resolving power, um, EF doesn't have that you know quote limitation, um, complete right. total limitation that we do now. Again, it's just how we can build the lens. But can an EF lens you know properly resolve 45 megapixels? Absolutely, because a lot of them weren't. That glass wasn't designed for that. Um, not sure who says that because we've been pushing 50 so million your, pixels for several years. There you go. Okay. So, because that was one of the questions in there, Morris Meyer uh, asked, uh, yeah. and a bunch of other people, Mike Martin on Facebook, Jeff Harmon, they all asked about this 20 megapixel thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's move on to ISO because ISO is a big one to me. The R5 sure. is up to 51,000. I don't know if anybody's going to shoot it. Expandable to 102. The R6 goes up to 102 natively, 102 400, expandable yeah. to 204,800. Again, don't know anybody's going to shoot it except they just need to do it because you got to yeah. test it, right? But here's my question because I want the R5 myself for concerts and I kind of want both in all honesty. But how usable is the R5 at higher ISO compared to like my 5D4? Like my 5D4 starts to deteriorate at 3200. I shoot 64 regularly. They're noisy. The R5 just by sheer design, even though it's not as good as the R6 and it's 45 mm -hmm. megapixels packed in, how's its low light performance compared to the 6? Um, well, I think you're going to find that if you're shooting an R5 for your concert work, you're going to be pleasantly surprised in how much more you can push that that sensor because um, okay. even with the, the EOS R, I was able to push that a little bit further and shoot at much higher ISOs because, um, again, the Digic processor has a lot to do with that and running the Digic X processor that we have now, that, that will actually change a lot of how people will work. Um, and I think I told you at the last WPPI, I was shooting concert stuff at, uh, 20,000 ISO and you were like, no, really? And it was, it, it's there. If you, if you shoot it correctly, you can actually okay. get publishable, usable images. That was on the five? On the, on the EOS R. And uh, now we're going oh, to the on R5. The regular R. Oh. R. Going oh, okay. to the, R. yeah. And again, it's all dependent on your your level of acceptance for what is acceptable. Now, I always send it to the editor and they go, yep, I'll take it. No problem. Now, right. okay. would I print a billboard with it? Probably not. All right. Well, and the R5 has the better low-pass filter. We talked about low-pass filter earlier. Yep. You know, So that's, that's a key there. The autofocus system, though, is identical in both, correct? They are. Yep. Yeah, you, you do have the, the so, same dual-pixel CMOS AF2. Which is unlike mine, which was only a, available in live view, 
it's available because now you're using an EVF. So you get the dual pixel autofocus through the viewfinder. Well, you get that, but it's also using the deep learning technology that we've imported over from the 1DX Mark III. And that's part of the subject tracking and, and recognition system where it's really able to identify the subject's face, head, body, eyes, and really cats. move quick. Dogs, cats, birds. Um, it, it's been such a weird experience to go out and photograph ospreys and have it go behind a tree and it still tracks the bird and it doesn't care if the trees are closer and more detailed definition, it's locked onto that osprey as it goes through and it's on the other side of the tree, it's still on okay. the bird. So uh, Hero Shots just said, does the R5 or R6 have an AA filter? I don't know what Yeah, AA everything we've is. done, even even the, the 5DS and SR, they had low pass filters. They were just different designs of a low pass filter. Okay. So yes, they do. Well, and the five here has the high res OLPF low pass filter. Right. Um, so there is a slight sensitivity difference. The R6 goes down to minus 6.5 mm -hmm. uh, versus minus six, but they both go up to plus 20, which is, which is great. Right. I hear often, oh, it's got great focus or, oh, it's got low light. I rarely hear people talk about it. it's got great focus in low light. Your experience? Um, well, this is one of the things that um, we, we actually demonstrated to um, our people uh, for in the field rep team where we actually turned off all the, the lights in the, in the studio in, the, in our office here in Melville, turned on an iPad, and the cameras were able to focus using just the light from the iPad um, to illuminate the entire scene. So the cameras can see in low light and, and follow that, that subject. Now, the, the question is, what lens do you have attached to it? Because that's going right. to have a lot of question. If it's an F4 lens, it's not going to see the same way as it is if the 1.2 lens. So all of those measurements at, you know, EV65 uh, is at 1.2 at the center AF area. So what, there's... Which brings up a question John Balboni asked on Twitter, and that is, with the new lenses being F11, specifically the, the 600 and the 800, Mm-hmm. In low light with those F11 lenses, fixed F11, uh, F11, do you think that there'll be a hunting issue in low light? Depends on how low light you want to discuss. That that's they they do when you mount those two lenses to the R5 and R6, you'll see the the uh, the focus area drop down to a a 60 by 80 area. So it's just the center box area for for selective focus. Um, we went out and shot some stuff early morning and. It's not, it, it, any lens is going to struggle if you have lower light, right? So if you have an F11 lens, it's not going to be able to see as well as an F4 lens or F2.8 lens. So you're going to see some differences, but um, I haven't done a whole lot at night with the, the new F11 lenses. We've just introduced them, so we haven't had a whole lot of time to play with them yet. Um, I think you're going to be surprised by these F11 lenses um, more than I'll tell you think. You, with Rick being on the show, the shots he gave me yeah. were literally nothing sh short of stunning specifically the cardinal shot that he shot with the one to 500 100 to 500 was like oh my god so here's i'm so glad that somebody asked this it was in the photo taco listeners facebook group which is a, a podcast photo taco podcast great podcast by the way by jeff Harmon. david todd asked the question steve wants to know because my and i've, I've talked with this with a bunch of people it's no secret my one complaint with my 5d4 is that spot metering doesn't follow the focus point. And 
a lot of people don't know this and will say, oh, use spot meter. And I explained to them in a concert scenario, you could move your focus point up and to the right on a brightly lit spotlit singer's face, and it could still be metering off black stage if you are in spot meter mode on a 5D4. Only the 1DX series mm -hmm. does the spot meter follow the focus point. So my right. question is, on these bodies, do you have any idea if the spot meter follows the focus point? Please say yes. Please say yes. That's a really good question. Uh, technically, it is the center area. However, if you are tying the exposure situation, um, the evaluative system actually applies more metering to where you're focused. Um, so that's a that's a good one to to look into more. I'd have to determine if it's truly tied to the to the AF point. Okay. And while we're doing that, I will look and see if it may not with your system with the new system. It may not matter. But then that brings in the other question: Is are the focus points horizontal, vertical, cross type, dual cross type? Well, they're 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 none of which they're dual pixel CMOS AF. So they're they're not the same type of so autofocus the, the, system. The whole the whole old concept is gone. Then it's somewhat gone. I mean, they're 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 based on the pixel itself. Um, simply okay. because when you look at how an, uh, a DSLR autofocus system is, it's a separate array of sensors for, um, for focus. And they're either running in horizontal orientation, vertical orientation, or a diagonal orientation underneath the submirror of the camera. Um, so when you're looking at the R5 and R6 now, you're running dual pixel CMOS AF, which is pixel for pixel. Each one is the focus system. So, um, Wow. It, it, it is a little bit different. And when I'm looking at um, the spot metering description here, it, it's only 3% of the screen. So it is tied to the center area. It is not tied to uh, given AF points. The point where it moves. But it, again, it may be a moot point based on the new system. Right. And as you, yeah, because you, you're starting to weight the exposure to that, you're able to tie a little bit more to it. But when you do put it in right. spot metering, it is that center 3%. Okay. So let's finish up the bodies and then touch on the lenses really quick. The bodies, sure. the, the main thing we got to cover still is the video. R5 does 8K, R6 does not. That's one big difference. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no crop, by the way. There was a, on the R5, there's a slight crop. It's, it's minimal, 0. 1.07. 1.07. It's, it's because the aspect ratio of, of UHD, or sorry, um, uh, UHD video versus DCI, 17 by 9 versus 16 by 9 inside a two, three frame. Okay. And, and the R6 is only, it ha doesn't have DCI. It's UHD only. It's UHD whereas only, the yes. R5 does DCI. There's also a compression difference, right? They have different compression algorithms. So it's only IPB. Correct. On the R6, it's only R6? Uh, IPB. And you get whereas all the I the or R5. IPB. You've got all the different choices. IPB, all I, in 8K, you've got raw. <clears throat> so you've got a lot of different choices on R5, depending on your, your video needs. Um, how much editing do you do? If you're going to you know, shoot a lot of, uh, shoot straight to uh, YouTube or, or a video news outlet, you might be fine with the R6 because you know, you're gonna capture that video, trim it, do some light color grading and send it. You're not gonna do frame by frame edits. Right. But if you're going to try matching a C500 or a C200 raw footage, you might want the R5 where you've got all those capabilities. Right. Okay. Right. R5 also has different frame rates, obviously. So it's all, all the stuff you would think uh, difference-wise. Right. The one thing that came out, and, and Canon released a media alert on this, mm -hmm. 
the media alert was called details regarding Canon EOS R5 EOS R6 overheating during video recording. This became a thing online where people were saying, I've heard that it overheats. I've heard that it overheats. Let, before I let Drew answer this, let me just say, I was shooting an outdoor festival in 110 degree weather and my DSLR overheated, right? It's electronics, people. If it's in the sun, it's going to overheat. <laughs> if it's in the sun and you're capturing 8K video, which let's be honest, you can't even deliver it as 8K. You're, you're doing that so that you can crop in, right? Because there's no delivery mechanism for 8K really right now. Then yes, there is a possibility that your gear may overheat. That's called physics. So with that in mind, I don't need to defend Canon. I'll let you speak to this. It just, sometimes I see these things and it's like, oh, well, I heard, oh, well, I heard. You know, again, if a, it's okay that a camera is not right for your use case. If you need a cinema camera, go buy a cinema camera. But if you've got cinema cameras and you want a second small body to attach to the roof of a car that doesn't cost as much in case the car crashes, right? Or when it does. And you're shooting, or when it does, intentionally perhaps. Intentionally. And you're shooting a 10-minute, you know, racetrack scene this may be the perfect body for you. So what is your answer to this quote unquote argument? Um, Cause Canon has been super transparent here. We, we have been, we've been, we, we've tried to be as, as forthcoming as possible and say, you know what? The 8k record time is 20 minutes. And that's basically, that's just limitations of how you can drive sensor processor there. I mean, it's 8k footage running at 2,600 megabits a second. It's huge, huge data yeah. rates. Yeah. Um, and it's there for a reason. So we, we said, you know what, we'll give you as much as possible. There's going to be a drawback and that drawback is heat. You're going to run it full width 4k, 120 frames a second. There's a potential for some heat on that in running. I think we limit that to seven minutes. I, I can't think of too much time where I'm recording beyond two or three minutes of slow motion footage in a take. Usually it's pretty fast action. All right, shoot it. And then cut. All right, let's do another one. Do another take. 4K 120. Right. Let's do another take. So you might do several takes that are very short clips. If you run seven minutes of 120 frame uh, video, that's a long, long take. Yeah, the hard that's part a was, lot of data. It's a lot of data. And the hard part was when you really drive these cameras, you know, what's the cool down period? And that was the big question is, how do you go back to that 20 minutes of record time um, and what is that limitation? That's where we put out that, that media alert. So that it's not that we're having to cover anything or, or restate. It was basically a restatement saying, here's the real information for you. For those of you that are trying to make a decision right. on what this does, if you over, if it does overheat, you're going to have to wait 10 minutes to get three minutes of record time. You may 20 minutes, you get eight minutes of record time. I think that's the math. Um, so we try and put that out there just so you have that knowledge. These cameras don't have a fan in them because again, this is a multi-purpose camera. It's meant for stills and video. If you look right. at the cinema bodies, they're dedicated video. They've got fans in them. They're built for this type of work. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a great point. This is a hybrid body. It's a hybrid. And you're complaining it doesn't shoot 8K footage for four hours. I mean, it just, people, come on. I, I understand the need and I understand the question. And you know what? We're, we take all of that right. and go, all right. What do we, how do we handle that in future units? How do we take this? What are you doing with 8K? Show us what you're doing so we can take that knowledge and go, aha, here's what we can do 
next time. But for now, I think we've produced a amount of information that's out there for people to make a, a wise decision on what they're doing. Again, most people aren't delivering in 4K to begin with, but even at 4K 24 and 30, there's no record limit other than the 29.97 that's imposed in the camera itself. But that's a long time. I think for most people that would buy this, like somebody said, you know, Terrell said, uh, the guy who's bummed that he can't get 29 minutes of 4K at 120 isn't Tarantino. Look, <laughs> those people exist that need that. I get it. I totally get it. And there are cameras for that from Canon. Mm -hmm. I just, again, I don't need to defend Canon here. This is just one of those that was a big thing to me that, I don't know. So let's close out with lenses. Uh, this will be a short part and I'll let you get on with your day here. No worries. Two big super zooms. The 600 millimeter RF and the 800 millimeter RF, they're both fixed at F11. They're mm -hmm. both diffracted optics, which was an interesting thing to me. Huh? And they're collapsible. So yeah. explain these things to me. Well, the, the demand is there for long telephoto zooms that people can get into at a, we'll call it an entry level price point. I mean, before you didn't have an 800 millimeter or 600 millimeter lens that was a lightweight and affordable. And when you pick these two up, I mean, you, and I think uh, Rick Salmon said the best, if he could juggle, he would juggle with these lenses. Um, I can juggle. I won't juggle with the lenses, but I could. Um, it, it, they are so light. It, it, they're just, it's something you don't really understand until you pick one up. And to go out and photograph, you know, egrets and, and birds, and um, airplanes at the, at the local air show when, when we get back to, to normalcy and they have air shows, um, I think you're going to have an absolute blast with these lenses for those situations because I don't know about you, but swinging around an yeah. 800 millimeter um, lens all day, uh, it, it gets a little backbreaking. And sometimes I want to cheat and I might carry these out with me um, just to see, you know, how long can you go? You're going to go a long day with this. These are so light. I could use these at shows, except for the F11 for me is going to be tough. But again, yep. that's dependent on the fact that these new bodies have higher ISO performance or better ISO performance yep. than my 5D Mark IV will. So it yeah, may be amazing what I actually can do, a soundboard shoot at a day festival. Mm -hmm. These could be actually really interesting. And they're IS. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you go so you to got a, five a, stops in the 600 and four in the 800. Mm -hmm. If you go to a, a like a college sporting event, Many of those stadiums are 80% daylight, and you're going to have pretty good capabilities with. Not that the pros in the in the dugouts or the the sidelines are going to be shooting with f11 lenses, but maybe you're a stringer for a newspaper, or maybe you're uh, mom and dad, and you've got Johnny playing on a big time game or Sally playing a big time game. You're going to have the ability to get those images that you couldn't get before. You'd have to rent a lens. Maybe in this case, you could buy the lens for what the rental might be. Yeah. Okay. Go yeah. cost. Cause this is, cost. this is to me, when I saw the cost, I actually thought I'm not even kidding. I thought it was a typo. I thought there was supposed to be a one in front of each of these. No, that's the thing. So if you look at them, I'm, I'm, I always have to cheat on prices. So I always apologize. 699 for the 600 and, and 899 for the 800. Um, you know, they're sub a thousand dollars to get into enough to get into a long zoom lens like this, that you can put into your bag that you know you're going down to the Everglades for a weekend or you're going on a cruise right. for a right. trip up to Alaska and you want to photograph the Eagles. Holy cow, that'd be a lot of fun to not have to worry about swinging around a, a big owl glass and 
now you can store it in your bag. It, it, they literally collapse into your bag with no problem. Yeah, the way they collapse, and I, I had put a scene up of the, uh, the there it is right there, the 600 expanded versus the 800 collapsed. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's fascinating to me. Their IS, it ties in, I'm guessing, their RF lenses, they talk to the body, so you probably get six to eight stops of, um, of IS These are the, the two that aren't dedicated coordinated image stabilization. Um, we do have okay. that, that disclaimer out there, but they are they are extremely well stabilized for 600 and 800 millimeter lenses. You're going to have some really good results with these two pieces. It's they're, they're shockingly sharp. And then you've got the 100 to 500, which is an F45 to 71. It's twenty seven hundred dollars. Yeah, this is an interesting one because this one is also telescoping. Yeah, right? it's, so the, it follows, the focus yeah. is, is, is it the focus or the zoom? The focus is internal. But the zoom is is external. Most of our lenses that are zoom lenses are external zooming. I always hear that thing is why isn't this internal zooming? Well, the only internal zooming I think are the twenty eight seventy and seventy two hundred. The others are okay. external zooming, so it's not a all big external. deal. It's not a weather resistance issue at all. The one hundred to four hundred EF is an external um, telescoping zoom lens, and it's weather sealed the same as any other L series lens. Uh, this lens, the RF one hundred to five hundred. I think is going to be that go-to um, wildlife, sports, um, nature. I mean, I love carrying a 16 to 35, or now the 15 to 35 RF, and now the 100 to 500. That's my travel kit. Uh, I, I, I skip the middle range and go right from the, the wide to the long. Um, my One of my favorite lenses is the EF 16 to 35, uh, the newest one, the Mark oh, yeah. III, I guess it is. It's just so amazing. So there's also extenders, RF extenders, a 1.4 and a 2.0, as you would expect yep. any extenders. They are comparatively, I thought, expensive for extenders, but but uh, you've got them. And then you've got the new macro, which is an F285 macro. One thing, first of all, it's IS. Yeah. But this is not a one-to-one ratio true macro, right? Correct. It's a half life size, very similar to our 35 RF design, where it's a half life size macro. And uh 35 at half life size macro is to me a little bit um, wide for a close up macro, but it's a great uh, portrait lens if you want to get up a little closer to a subject but still have that wider width. The, the 85 F2 uh, RF being a half life size macro makes an incredible portrait lens because um, you're able to get even closer oh. to your subject. Think about it, it's, it's a foot yeah. 1.15 inches. Uh, one, one foot, 15 inches. So you get really close to your subject and it's half life size can, can blow out that background really, really nice. Even though it's F2, people say, well, I wanted a one, two, or I wanted a one, eight at F2 being a macro lens, half macro, it does change that, that look. It's a beautiful, beautiful lens. And it's, it's in that price, point, I think 599 for that lens. So it's really accessible uh, for a lot Did of I people. And I didn't write it, the price. Down. I, pretty sure that was 599 that's an expensive um, that's a that's a nice lens for that price it's gonna be that go-to i mean we've had we've had the 85 uh one eight since when was that 1994 i think was when that yeah, lens was almost it's been around a while and it has never been hair. refreshed i had much longer hair um but it, it's yeah. never been refreshed and so this is going to take that same spot um, and be a beautiful go-to portrait lens, especially on a, on a EOS R6. Holy cow, that'll be a fun combination. 
And my favorite portrait lens is still my 102.8 macro. It's just, mm-hmm. a, it's a, such a soft bokeh behind it. So our last question, this is from Dave Simpson via Facebook. Uh, and this is something I think a lot of people wonder about. Like even me, I take my gear out. It's a 5D4. It's a 70 to 200 L, you know, Mark II. They're, they're weather sealed lenses. But, you know, you always wonder in the back of your head. We talked about it earlier. Throw a sleeve on if you're worried about it. But he said, I, I'd be keen to understand a bit more about weather resistance with the RF extended lenses. And I'm guessing he's talking about the 600 and 800 that collapse and then extend. Can we let rain drop on the barrel fully extended? And then contract it back without drying it first. Uh, well, we because these are not weather sealed. Yeah, lenses. we do not state any weather resistance on the on the uh, six hundred and eight hundred millimeter lenses. Um, I would, in any case, I would dry off the lens before I retracted anything. Um, whether it's any lens, whether it's the one hundred to five hundred, I mean, I would try and right. protect anything because again, water. If you ever had a leak in your house you realize that that water will find its way to the weirdest spot, no matter how many things yep. you put in its way. Um, so I, I would try and dry things off as much as possible, as quick as possible, regardless of weather resistance uh, of the lenses and, and bodies themselves. So sure Drew, that answers the question. I've taken not, so but... much of your time. I Yeah, no, that answered it perfectly. I so appreciate your time very, very much. By the way, for those that tuned in late, Drew is an advisor of technical information for Canon USA. Uh, and I got to thank everybody at Canon that made this happen. Scott Heath, our mutual friend, for for getting this together as well. Thank you so much. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about the bodies or lenses that you wanted to tell people about? Oh, wow. Um, you know, we, we covered a lot of ground. And um, I think as... As consumers start to get these things in their hands, they're going to realize um, how powerful these two cameras are and how much work we've put into these two cameras uh, and lenses. Uh, the R system is still, I consider it a toddler. It's not really infancy. I think that was maybe two years ago. Maybe it's now a toddler and it's starting to walk a little bit and talk a little bit. Um, so I, I think um, I think you're going to realize how much power there is behind the sensor and processor and what we what we can do, how innovative we can be. So. I thank you for having me on and giving me this opportunity. Dude, it's first of all, it's really good to see you again, right? It I've is. met you a number of times and yeah. it's good to see you again beyond anything. I hope you, your family, and those that are important to you are, are well and safe during these weird times. But I really appreciate your time doing this. I appreciate Canon taking the time to do this. And just correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, usa.canon.com. Correct. For the website. And all social media... And by the way, I don't know that they'll see this, but the people who run socials for Canon have reshared this and reshared my Rick Salmon episode. Thank you so very, very much. We just say that right now. Uh, it's Canon at Canon USA on all socials, correct? Mm-hmm. I believe. Yes. Yes. Okay, perfect. So to everybody that tuned in, we've got, you know, 85 people still in the chat right now. So to all of you guys that came in to David, to Terrell, Scott Heath, Connor, Lou, well, Lou's in there too. Uh, Kevin, hey, Christian, I, I could go on and on. Yeah, Lou's in there too. Thank you so much for watching this. I really appreciate it. This is Behind the Shot. I'm the host, Steve Brazel. The show normally, for those of you that enjoyed this, please subscribe, click the bell on YouTube. The shows like this are only on YouTube, as well as the critique shows that I do with Don Komarechka once a month, image critique shows. We do that through our Flickr group. 
And the normal podcast, we take one shot from a photographer and we dissect it. We talk to that photographer and try and understand why they made the choices that they did. Basically, the way I describe it is we try and get inside the mind of great photographers by taking a closer look behind one of their shots. That podcast is at BehindTheShot.tv. You can subscribe to it in either audio or video formats wherever you get your podcasts. And again, you can also go to the website. The videos are also posted here. Quick reminder as well, Smug Mug Live, right here on YouTube with Alistair Jolly. I'm actually recording a Behind the Shot episode with him in 40 minutes. But I'm going to be on Smug Mug Live this coming Thursday, uh, July 23rd. 10 a.m. Pacific time, talking about concert photography, youtube.com slash smugmugfilms is the URL. So put it in your calendar. Make sure to join me there. To everybody at Canon, to Drew McCallum, thank you so much for joining me on Behind the Shot. We will see you on the next show.